Hi everybody, I just wanted to hop on and talk about a couple different topics that are discussed in chapter 9 and chapter 10. Chapter 9 is developing intercultural relationships and chapter 10 is on intercultural conflict. Um, I wanted to start off by talking about something called the uncertainty reduction theory. And honestly, I don't remember if I've gone over this before in this class yet. Um, so I'm just going to jump into it. The uncertainty reduction theory claims that we have one main goal when meeting somebody new or being put into a new situation, and that is reducing the uncertainty that surrounds it. And how does one reduce uncertainty? By finding things out about something. And so the more uncertainty that surrounds something, the less we know about it. And when we want to know about something or someone, we engage in information-seeking strategies to get more information on that. There are three different kinds of information-seeking strategies that exist in the uncertainty reduction theory. Number one is passive, number two is active, and number three is interactive. Um, so one, one example that I use quite a bit is when you're trying to find out about a new teacher. Maybe you're looking into spring quarter and you're saying, hmm, I've never heard of this person before. Do I want to take a class with them? Um, how hard of a grader are they? How much homework is there? Um, are their classes fun? A passive way to find out about that would be to go on your computer and maybe go to like ratemyprofessor.com or even uh, just type in their name and maybe a, a website comes up or their LinkedIn or something and you're able to get communication, um, sorry, information on them from that. And maybe that will reduce some of the uncertainty around them. Maybe by finding out where they went to college or reading some reviews, you feel like you have a better idea of who they are. Next, you could do the active strategy, which would be going to someone that's had a class with them before and saying, hey, I've heard of, you know, um, Melissa Doty. How is she? Is she, you know, is she a jerk? Is she mean? Does she have, um, you know, a good textbook? Does she tell good stories? Whatever it is that's important for you. And they can say, you know, yeah, she's okay. Or, you know, I really enjoyed it. And then you're getting information that way. And lastly, this probably won't surprise you, an interactive strategy would be coming to me directly or going to that teacher directly and saying, hey, I wanted to learn a little more about you, maybe your teaching background, even your, your pedagogy, all of that, and going directly to the source. And we see this all of the time. Maybe you're going to travel to a new city and so you look it up online you ask people that have been there before um my sister does this before she goes into any restaurant um and it's it's funny to see but she'll bring up you know the the menu and all of that as well she'll even ask some people like hey what do you recommend on the menu and so we all engage in this quite a bit something we talked about before in class was um, how cultures feel about not knowing a lot. Um, 
and how they feel about uncertainty. And some cultures feel very uncomfortable with uncertainty, whereas others are, are okay with it and they can kind of roll with it and be flexible. Um, so that's something to consider when thinking about the uncertainty reduction theory. But I did want to go into the axioms just a little bit. You will see that there are axioms listed on page 294 of our textbook. And I also uploaded a, a little simple uh, PDF, sorry, a JPEG on our module um, that goes through the seven axioms. And those are verbal communication, nonverbal expressions, information seeking, which we just went over right now, self-disclosure, reciprocity, similarity, and liking. So I'll go over each of those just a little bit right now, and hopefully you'll get a better idea of what this is all about. So the first two axioms are verbal and nonverbal. I think that these are pretty self-explanatory, especially after you all went through the verbal and nonverbal communication chapters. But the more verbal communication that we're able to share with each other, the more that we feel like we know the other person, of course. And um, nonverbals also help us feel that we trust that person better. There are certain gestures that make us feel safe with people. And then the third axiom is the information-seeking strategy. But something I wanted to focus on would be number four, self-disclosure. Self-disclosure is a really tough part about having a relationship with somebody and opening up. And self-disclosure doesn't necessarily mean that you're telling somebody everything about you, but you are sharing parts of yourself with them. And here's the tricky part. If you want to have a really strong connection with someone, it does require some amount of self-disclosure. But anytime you do disclose, you are putting yourself in a bit of a, a scary and vulnerable situation. So before you disclose to someone, meaning open up to them and, and share things with them, it is important to ask yourself, um, is this someone I can trust and is this someone I can be vulnerable with? And I'll actually use myself as an example here. As a teacher, I want to connect with my students. I don't expect to go you know, out to the, the movies with my students or anything like that because I do believe in a professional relationship. But I also think that old ways of teaching where it's very hierarchical and the teacher is the only one speaking and students have to listen to the teacher without without questioning um i think that that's actually more damaging than it is helpful so in my classroom especially when i'm in the physical classroom i strive to create a really nice balance where i'm the teacher but i'm also a student and students are students but they're also the teacher and so i look for this exchange of knowledge and this respect and i often share things about myself that could make me pretty vulnerable but i feel it's important for people to know and also um, important because i think it can help people feel seen and supported so one example of that is i have some mental health issues and historically people with mental health issues have been very careful 
as to not share because there is a pretty big stigma even to this day related to mental health issues. And so on one hand, right, as far as self-disclosure goes, I know, oh, this is risky because I am putting myself out there, I'm opening up, and this could be kind of scary. But on the other hand, I know that in every classroom that I have, it's very likely that there are other people that have mental health issues. And hearing that I also have them can make them feel heard, can make them feel seen, and also supported. I think that you're more likely to be able to go to your teacher and say, hey, I didn't get the work done this weekend because I had a panic attack, if you know that the teacher can relate with you. And so I look at that and I kind of balance things, right? I can share this about my mental health struggles, or I can act like I'm totally fine and I have no struggle at all. And I decide that in order for us to know each other better and to work well together and for them to be um, this closeness, I do elect to share my mental health struggles and um, I do feel safe in doing so. I still don't feel safe in doing that um, and sharing that necessarily with every supervisor that I have, but there are supervisors that I know that I'm more or less safe with and I'm okay sharing that with. So um, think about that self-disclosure and what we share with people and how that can reduce a lot of uncertainty about us, but it also is something that we should we should ask ourselves before. Because if you are just meeting someone and you disclose things about yourself that generally you guard, that can be risky. But at the same time, if you know someone, you trust them and you're not sharing and you're not disclosing things about yourself, then um, the relationship may not be as strong as you think. So just something to kind of keep in mind as you create relationships and as you think about the uncertainty reduction theory. The next is reciprocity. And of course, we know that reciprocity is is basically give and take. It's one side and then the other side. And that's where you're both taking turns in this process. So think about like a first date, for example, with somebody or um, maybe you're on a dating app and you're trying to get to know somebody. If they ask you a question, you're most likely going to ask something similar back, right? If somebody says, hey, what's your job? What do you do? You're probably not going to answer, I'm a mechanic. And then just leave it there. You're going to answer, I'm a mechanic. What do you do? Or if they ask you your interests, you're most likely going to ask them for their interests back um, because there is that back and forth. If you remember our communication models in the beginning of class, we talked about how there is a linear communication model where it's one way, but that's not very successful because you're not getting feedback. But whenever we're going both back and forth and we're interacting with each other, that's when communication flourishes. And so we do want to make sure it's going back and forth. So reciprocity is the fifth axiom here. And then the last two axioms are similarity and liking. And this makes total sense. Um, the more you find out about somebody, the more opportunity you have to find out that they are in fact similar to you. And then moving forward, the more you find out about somebody, the more you're able to like them. 
So you can think that somebody you work with is pretty cool and, and they're chill, but then when you find out that they have, you know, they also go rock climbing on the weekends, um, that similarity, that shared interest is most likely going to increase the amount that you like them. So I know a lot of these are pretty obvious, but I do want us to think about uncertainty reduction theory and that our, our goal is to reduce that uncertainty. And remember that uncertainty can create quite a bit of anxiety and that makes total sense. Whenever you go into your first day of your new job or first day of a new class, everything is a question mark. And as you get to know more, um, the less uncertainty you have and probably the less anxiety you have surrounding something. After you've been in a class for three weeks, you more or less know what to expect. Um, so that's a little bit on uncertainty reduction theory. Chapter nine goes over quite a bit of good stuff, but something else I wanted to bring your attention to would be when it talks about intercultural communication and marriage plus romantic relationships, different kind of partnerships. Relationships within the same culture are very difficult but when you add the intercultural aspect um there there are a lot of difficulties that exist that does not mean that it's not possible what it does mean and that it's very important to be intentional about communication and and opening up your mind and getting to know more about the other person on page 312 and page 313, you're going to see a list of intermarriage stressors. I think this is super interesting, and I'm going to call out just a couple of them. Um, I have traveled quite a bit, and I do have a lot of friends in um, intercultural relationships, and I think that this is a good, a good thing for us to go over. So... Um, it talks about how child rearing is seen differently, sex, gender roles, extended family connections. And that's one thing I wanted to talk about. There are families that grow up and generations remain in the same household or the same area. Whereas other cultures believe, hey, um, like romantic partners um, are on their own and then their kids and everyone kind of has their own house. Next, there's time orientation, um, also affection expression. Super important to think about things like public displays of affection and even displays of affection in front of someone's parents. I think that if you, let's say you're in Moses Lake and you're walking in the downtown area, I don't think it would feel super weird if you saw a couple holding hands and even giving each other some kisses right on on the cheek or maybe even on the lips not necessarily full like making out but if you saw that it probably wouldn't be something that super um caught your attention or looked super weird but in other countries it could be super super weird very uncomfortable and even seen as extremely inappropriate when I lived in Saudi Arabia, there was not even hand-holding that occurred in public between spouses. Um, and definitely, definitely not a kiss. So 
super important to consider. If you're in an intercultural relationship and you're around your significant other's parents, um, that's something else you might want to talk about. Hey, I'm okay hugging in front of my parents. Is that something that's okay with you? And um, those conversations are definitely worth having. Then we move on to um, role flexibility, humor, cultural deference, and recognition of similarities and cultural reframing. All interesting stuff. Please go into it. But I also wanted to hit on something um, referred to as arranged marriages. I know it sounds a little bit crazy, but yes, um, arranged marriages still happen um, in several, several places in the world. I'm going to go back to to Saudi Arabia just a little bit for this one. What I was teaching in um, the eastern province of Saudi Arabia, I remember I was teaching a class one day. And I asked my students um, how many of their parents had been in an arranged marriage. And every single student in my class raised their hands. Um, And then I said, how many of your parents are cousins? And probably 75% of my students raised their hands. Now, um... When I say arranged marriage, in Saudi Arabia at least I can speak to, it looks something like this. Um, Parents say, hey, you're getting to an age where we think that you should be married. Or their kids come to them and say, hey, I'm ready to be married. And then the parents start going through their social networks, right? So one big place to find a wife for your son in Saudi Arabia would be at weddings because weddings are generally separated into uh, male and female sections. And so if you are in the female section and you're someone's mom, you're seeing all these girls around and it's very normal to ask them like, hey, um, are you married? Tell me a little more about yourself. Can I get your mom's phone number that kind of thing and then the moms would chat and so families are very very involved each parent would each set of parents would go to their kid and say what what are you looking for in a spouse and they might say i want someone who has a master's degree i want someone who is tall i want someone who's you know whatever it is they're looking for but the family is also going to keep in mind that um, there are certain social things they want. So for example, is this person from our tribe? Sometimes people prefer, a lot of times people prefer when the potential spouse is from their tribe or at least the region that they're from because there are a lot of cultural things that are similar. Um, And that makes sense. This entire class, we're going over all of these differences and, and how some People are very scared of uncertainty. And so um, in this specific culture I'm talking about, uncertainty is is not not something that's liked. Um, And if I know who your mom and dad is, which family you're from, which town you're from, I know quite a bit about you, right? And so at some point, um, 
the the girl and the guy see you know different pictures of people meet with different people's parents and um at some point they say like yeah this this person seems like like a good fit let's let's move forward with this and sometimes the um engaged couple might meet each other like in their family's homes with their families there chaperoning them um other times they might go out to like coffee or something um but there's not going to be a lot of alone time there uh until they're actually married and so um pretty different than than what we do in the united states Though some cultures within the U.S. do prefer that people stay with people from their own culture, country, um, whatever it might be, right? And so just something I want you all to think of, these, these differences, even when it comes to love in different cultures. I think it's important um, to note that some arranged marriages do end up making people very happy and fulfilled. And other times, arranged marriages can be absolutely rife with abuse and toxicity. And it's hard for us, um, those at least who come from a country or a culture, sorry, where um, arranged marriages don't happen to maybe understand the extent of it. And so I just want everyone to know that they they do exist, that um, some are more healthier than others um and of course even in a lot of arranged marriages there still is a a choice involved right um i would say there's a difference between a forced and an arranged marriage so something to consider there